Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, following the truth wherever it leads, exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality, coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Hey there, and welcome once again to another episode of Strange Planet. Thanks, as always, for sticking me in your ear. And if you'd like to get deeper into Strange Planet, you might consider becoming a premium subscriber. It's real easy to do. Just click on the link in the episode notes, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. You gain access to commercial-free listening uh, bonus episodes, and you get a subscription to my monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, strangeplanet.supportingcast.fm. All right, we're going to uh, get into a very, very interesting story uh, tonight. It involves the great prohibition agent, Elliot Ness, the man who helped bring down Al Capone in Chicago. And uh, we're going to combine his remarkable story with a grisly spree of unsolved murders in Cleveland at the height of the Depression. This is the, uh, the subject of a brand new book called American Demon, Elliot Ness and the Hunt for America's Jack the Ripper. And Daniel Stashauer is an American author and editor of mystery fiction and historical nonfiction, New York Times bestseller, and also an award winner, Edgar Award for Best Critical Biographies, uh, Best Fact Crime, uh, First Novel by an, uh, an American Author. He's won the Anthony Award for Best Critical Nonfiction, the Agatha Award a number of times for Best Short Story, Best Nonfiction, Best Paperback Original, and uh, again, uh, the latest, American Demon, Elliot Ness and the Hunt for America's Jack the Ripper. Daniel Stashauer, welcome to Strange Planet. How are you? I'm just fine. Thank you, Richard. Uh, I'm trying to imagine you as a nine-year-old boy sitting around a campfire roasting marshmallows and first being introduced, uh, because you, you grew up in Cleveland, being introduced to this rather grisly tale. Just take us back there to a nine years old and, and how you learned about the- Yes, this uh, it, was the first I'd, uh, it was the first I'd heard of, of this series of crimes. As you mentioned, I grew up in Cleveland, and I was at an overnight camp, and uh, we were roasting marshmallows around a, around a campfire, and the counselor thought it would be just a terrific idea to entertain this group of, of campers with the story of a gruesome series of murders uh, carried out by a killer who had not been caught that had taken place in woods very much like the ones that surrounded us uh there outside of uh outside of cleveland i don't think any of us slept at all that night i remember uh, uh the, the phrase um and the killer was never found was repeated over and over again and so we had to and i remember also we had to stop him to get him to explain what the word decapitated meant but he got through the story and sent us off to, to in our in our tents. And uh, as I say, I'm sure most of us had a white knuckle night, listening for sounds and snapping twigs and things outside the tents. Well, 
you know, sure enough, 50 years later, uh, lo and behold, I'm an, I'm an author and I, I have a particular interest in true crime. I'd always wanted to do a story set in my hometown. Uh, and this seemed to, uh, uh, just seemed like an ideal opportunity. You know, only now I am the camp, camp counselor. Uh, and you have to bring your own marshmallows. <laughs> uh, the Cleveland Torso Murderer, also known as the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Um, so just kind of set the scene for us uh, it, it, again, early, or I guess, mid-1930s and um, 35, 1935 to about 38. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. Discovery uh, of these, the, the, the initial discovery of some of these bodies. Well, it's just a, one horrifying scene after another. As you mentioned, this is during the worst years of the Great Depression. And this string of absolutely brutal murders is unfolding, horrible and seemingly without precedent. Each of the victims appeared to have been beheaded, some, it seemed, while still alive. And the remains, in most cases, were painstakingly dismembered and scattered across the city. So the horror was everywhere. A pair of schoolboys would stumble over a headless torso or a severed limb would be seen floating along the Cuyahoga River or a skull would be found rattling around in a tin can at the city dump. And each atrocity touched off a cycle of fear and outrage and calls for action in the newspapers. One reporter said, uh, he was that almost unknown creature, a master criminal. And he added, it can be argued powerfully that he was the greatest murderer of all time. This is um, in an era before a lot of, you know, forensic tools were at the disposal of the police. Uh, I don't even know if the, the term serial killer had entered the, the popular lexicon. Um, how quickly was it established that that it was one individual responsible for all these murders. It took a while. It took a while before the police realized that they were dealing with a series of connected crimes. But at one stage, a body was discovered barely a mile away from where two others had been found a few months earlier. And the scale of the thing snapped into focus. An investigator told the press that he and his detectives were on the trail of a crazed killer with a flair for butchery. But as you mentioned, this is the 1930s. Modern forensics, techniques like uh, criminal profiling, that stuff hasn't, hasn't happened yet. But even so, the Cleveland police threw everything they had at it, and they even improvised new techniques. They were trying to push through the limitations of the resources of the day and the technology of the time. The coroner pulled together a panel of experts just to hear their ideas to produce what they called a synthetic portrait of the killer. Today, we would recognize that as, as profiling. And at another stage, the police went looking for a particular suspect, but they, they couldn't find a photograph of him. So all they had was a childhood photo so they projected this childhood image onto a, a, a canvas, and they had an artist alter and embellish the image to approximate the man's present-day appearance, like the age progression software 
that mm. we have today. Again and again, you see these detectives just really putting their 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 elbow, their you know their their shoulder to the door, really trying to muscle their way in. They did their best, but as the one of the newspapers would ask, what fantastic chemistry of the civilized mind converted this killer into a human butcher and that turned out to be a very tough nut to crack the um were the media immediately sort of making the obvious parallels to jack the ripper that had taken place his killing spree like 50 years earlier yep that happened quite quickly uh largely because the crimes in Cleveland overlapped with the 50th anniversary of the Ripper crimes in London, in the autumn of terror that began in uh, August of 1888. And a lot of the coverage of the American crimes drew explicit parallels to the Ripper crimes, and not only to the crimes themselves, but also to the climate of fear that surrounded them. And it got increasingly lurid over time there was talk about murder studios and there were photographs of severed heads and editorials about a madman whose god is the guillotine mm. and there were a lot of parallels to the ripper crimes but there were also a lot of inconsistencies in the american crimes that caused real headaches for the investigators some of the victims of the cleveland butcher were prostitutes like the ripper's victims but in general, there was no pattern. There were men and women, um, black and white, straight and gay. The victims were all found to be indigents. They were drifters and small-time criminals. And in the phrase that was used over and over again, they were people who would not be missed. Mm. Yeah, tell me uh, a little bit about, I mean, a lot of these bodies were found, um, I think it was called the, the Hobo Jungle, Kingsbury Run, Jackass Hill, um, yeah, not, not the greatest neighborhoods. No, uh, and Kingsbury Run in particular is this uh, gloomy thread of land, uh, this ancient dried up riverbed uh, that that sort of curled through uh, the city. And during the Depression years, it had become a focus of homeless encampments and shanty towns, and it had once been a garden uh, spot people went picnicking um there but but over the years uh um it had really become this um this this it was just given over to to these uh to these shanty towns and it seemed that the killer was preying on the indigent population who inhabited the shanty towns there uh how many how many bodies uh how many victims uh have we even established that um definitively you know uh it, it as with the ripper case where there's a canonical set of uh, victims uh that in this case the number is generally thought to be 12 or 13 but that there are many people who believe that the killer operated in a field uh, cast is not much wider than that uh, over the course of time uh that these crimes were being investigated in cleveland there were some similar uh, crime scenes uncovered nearby in Pennsylvania in an area that was connected by a direct railroad line. And there was a strong feeling at the time that perhaps uh, 
um, these were were attributable to the same killer. Uh, and people who have come to feel over the years that uh, when the, their, the heat got to be turned up too high in Cleveland, uh, the killer just moved on and uh, and continued elsewhere. Um, it must have been very difficult even to establish the identity of the victims. I mean, you find, uh, again, this is before DNA testing and so forth. You have... Um, you have severed heads, you have dismembered limbs, maybe just a, a torso, even the torso may have been uh, dissected, cut in half. Uh, talk to me about how they managed to identify these victims. You know, many of them never were identified and they, but they did their best in each case uh, to get an identity, uh, assuming that knowing who the victim was would lead them to the identity of the killer, particularly if they could find some connection uh, bet uh, between the victims. But it was very, very uh, hard to do. They got a lucky break early on uh, with a woman who who had a criminal record, and they were able um, to get to get fingerprints. Uh, but a lot of them, um, they never did identify them. At one stage, there was this victim whose body was covered with tattoos, really unique tattoos. Uh, the cartoon character Jiggs, a popular cartoon character of the time, was tattooed on his leg. Uh, there were names tattooed on his arms. There were things that appeared to suggest uh, military service. But it was this very strange combination, this tableau of tattoos all over his body. And you would think that someone with these kinds of identifying marks would not be hard to identify. Well, they sent out uh, feelers to tattoo parlors all across uh, the, the United States. And at one point, even put this victim's head on display in the city morgue, inviting people to come by and take a look in case anyone was able to put a name to the face. I mean, those are the lengths they went to. Again, they were leaving no stone unturned. They were really, really pushing hard. But the nature of these killers were such that a fair number of the victims never were identified. The tattooed man, I guess now forever known as John Doe II, uh, I think there were, what, four John Doe's and maybe an equal number of Jane Doe's never identified? And there were quite a few. And uh, the, and the, the ones who were identified, uh, although they ran down every lead, every connection, every uh, every possible uh, um, avenue they could, no matter how seemingly unpromising, uh, they never even got, they never got very far with the victims they were able to identify. You mentioned uh, fingerprints to identify, uh, it was a female victim. Was that Florence Palillo? Yes. Um, tell me a little bit more because this is pretty early on, I would imagine, in the art of fingerprinting and so forth. Maybe I'm wrong, but um, tell me about the uh, the investigator who, did he carry around his collection of fingerprints in a shoebox? Yeah, it was a remarkable man uh, uh, who had had his whole career um, with the Cleveland Police Department, and uh, 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 he he had this very very elaborate um, uh, system, and he was also uh, a, a a big big. Uh, 
um, advocate of the Bertillon system of identification with the measurements of the heads. His name was uh, 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 Kessel. And uh, he was at the end of his career um, when, uh, when this case uh, surfaced. But he had adopted, he'd been an early proponent of fingerprint identification. He, he began collecting fingerprints in Cleveland, I think in 1906, well before fingerprints had become the gold standard uh, accepted as evidence in American courtrooms. And in one year alone, he matched the prints of uh, nearly 2,000 suspects to fingerprint cards that he already had on file and identified seven John Doe's in the county morgue. These weren't connected to this series of crimes, but he he had made this remarkable um, process, progress in fingerprint identification. And when the body of this woman was found horribly dismembered and wrapped in newspapers and put into straw baskets that were found behind a butcher shop, you know, just as, as gruesome a crime as you can imagine, Castle wow. managed to dive into his uh, his fingerprint file. He had some, I think it was 12,000 um, uh, cards on file. And he came out a short time later with an identification. And they discovered uh, the identity of this woman. And they worked that lead just as hard as they could. This was fairly early in the series of crimes. They contacted uh, everyone who'd had anything to do with her. She was a woman who had uh, worked at least um, partly uh, at various times in the past as a prostitute. And they tracked down as many of the uh, men who had crossed her path as they possibly could. They found an ex-husband and brought him to town, but ultimately it went nowhere. Um, I guess this individual is listed as a possible victim, the Lady of the Lake. Yes, uh, that was um, that was fairly early on. Uh, a man was gathering firewood along the shores of Lake Erie, and he came upon uh, this these remains. This was um, um, uh, at a time when there was there was no idea of a series of crimes being carried out. And uh, the the police did everything they could um, to identify um, that victim, especially after a second set of remains turned up that matched up perfectly with uh, the the first section of a human torso that had been found. With that one, they even employed uh, Boy Scouts to help scan the shore of Lake Erie looking for remains. I mean, can you imagine what that merit badge uh, would look like? But it shows again how hard they were working to get traction in this investigation. We'll take a quick timeout, come back. More of my conversation with Daniel Stashauer, the author of American Demon, Elliot Ness, and the hunt for America's Jack the Ripper. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. We're now crossing a zone of turbulence. Please return your seats and food trays to their upright position and make sure your carry-on luggage is safely stowed. You're about to leave everything you know behind. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Strange Planet. 
Welcome back. Daniel Stauschauer is with us, American Demon, Elliot Ness on the Hunt for America's Jack the Ripper. He's a New York Times bestselling author, Edgar Award winner. And um, it's. I just realized uh, I'm wearing my um, rock and roll museum or a rock and roll hall of fame t-shirt from cleveland and here we are talking about cleveland that was not planned uh, so the other thing i wanted to get into was the the scope of this investigation uh the largest in cleveland history not surprisingly but um how many suspects did they have it was like in the thousands and thousands wasn't it it was uh there were and as a result of the scope of the investigation the number of people they pulled in and questioned they wound up clearing a lot of uh, old cases uh that that had nothing to do with this series of crimes but they did uh, wind up solving uh, uh, other crimes uh there were detectives uh, involved who put in just all kinds of uh, overtime and extra hours there was one detective a man named uh, uh, Peter Marillo, who who dressed up as a hobo and set himself out as bait, hoping to draw uh, the killer into an attack. That was the degree of of dedication that was showed shown. And this detective also, if you can imagine, spent his two week vacation over in Pennsylvania investigating those crimes to get a sense of uh, were these crimes connected to the Cleveland series or not. Uh, these guys um, just thought nothing, just they were not leaving anything uh, behind. They were, uh, uh, Marilyn in particular, possibly the most dedicated man ever to put on a police uniform. Uh, so um, it was a particular source of frustration for people like this who dedicated so much time and energy worked so hard and done such good work uh when time and again um the clues started to dry up and they fell back into a familiar pattern of frustration uh, they utilized polygraph testing during the investigation how new was that it was uh it was very new uh and and uh, yes uh that was used it was not uh admissible in court at that time um uh, fairly uh, fairly new technology um but uh it, so much so that it was hard to get access uh um, to a machine uh and uh, they they used all kinds of techniques things that we recognize uh that we would recognize today um the, from um techniques that are assisted that are assisted by computers that they did just through um a good old-fashioned shoe leather and knocking on doors so enter the uh, the great prohibition agent elliot ness uh who comes to cleveland i guess for act two of his career but let's there may be a few people out there who really don't know a lot about elliot ness outside of maybe the kevin costner uh, um Robert De Niro movie, The Untouchables. So just talk to us about Elliot Ness uh, as we know him best from his days in Chicago, uh, you know, taking an ax to beer bar barrels and, and so forth. Yeah, in many ways, Elliot Ness is exactly what you think. Uh, he's a hero, a man of great integrity and bravery, but he's also more than that, more than the tough guy that we know from TV and the movies. As you mentioned, he rose to fame during the Prohibition years as the man who got Al Capone. And he's remembered today 
as the leader of the Untouchables. This was this legendary team of prohibition agents. Uh, you mentioned the the old black and white uh, TV series. Uh, I remember it from childhood, although I only ever saw it in uh, in reruns. And a lot of uh, people out there will have seen the movie with Kevin Costner as as Ness and Robert De Niro uh, as Capone. When people think of Elliot Ness, they usually think of a big truck smashing through the doors of an illegal brewery and falling on the the, the beer barrels with an axe. The real real Elliot Ness was more than that. Uh, he was uh, he was a very forward thinking reformer. So, yes, he was astonishingly brave, and these exploits in Chicago were spectacular. But on screen, he usually, particularly in the, in the Untouchables TV show, the problems get solved with violence. And in real life, he rarely even carried a gun. He oh. once told a friend that he didn't need it. The empty holster was enough. And he brought off some really some, some of his bravest moments with that empty holster. He believed in uh, the science of police work and pushing uh, uh, police techniques forward in the lab. Uh, and I guess through the movie, we we tend to believe that he was responsible for bringing down Capone, but it was it was the U.S. Treasury Department, wasn't it? Agents from that came over from the U.S. Treasury Department that did this forensic accounting that ultimately led to Capone's demise. Yes, and. Uh, the movie and the TV shows, and uh, it's, it's it's easy to get the impression that uh, that Ness brought Capone down all by himself. Uh, he would have resisted uh, that characterization. He recognized himself as a part of a larger uh, team effort to bring down Capone. And as you mentioned, yes, it was it was the tax men who who moved in and got him on tax evasion charges, but. Uh, Ness played a very important part. He and his men were disrupting the uh, the system of bribes and payouts that kept uh, uh, Capone's empire uh, going. They dried up his revenue so that the, so that the tax men could move in and do their work. Ness himself uh, once gave an interview in which he said, "Yes, uh, the real." work was done um, by the treasury agents our job was more spectacular that's all and you can understand the press are are trying to find a handle on this story capone is being prosecuted uh on um on this strict interpretation of tax law and at the center of it there's this bold handsome young prohibition agent driving a truck through the doors of the breweries well Surely that's the story you're going to lead with. Which movie would you rather see? Mm. So uh, Ness got an awful lot of uh, of of publicity uh, at the time, and he was proud of the dangerous work that he'd done in Chicago. But he was uh, careful to share the credit with the uh, with the men he was working with. Incorruptible and humble. Um, so he he takes this job in Cleveland. Did he did he go to Cleveland right after Chicago and take the job of director of public safety or was there something that happened in between? No, not right away. Uh, he, he we don't and we think of him as a Chicago guy because that's where all the drama with Al Capone played out. 
Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize how brief that chapter of his life was. It was, it was pretty much wrapped up by the time he turned 30. And as you mentioned, he needed a second act. And he landed the job as a director of public safety as after a couple of years in the wilderness, uh, almost literally in the wilderness, chasing after moonshiners. Uh, and this job is a huge, huge promotion. Uh, he's in charge of the entire police department and the fire department and a whole lot more. It, it was such a big job, a lot of people assumed he'd fall flat on his face. In Chicago, as leader of the Untouchables, he'd been in charge of a handful of guys. Now, at a stroke, he's in charge of thousands of city employees in one of America's biggest cities. And nothing in his background had prepared him for a challenge on this scale. And a lot of people assumed uh, he would fall flat on his face. And in fact, some people who were used to business in Cleveland being done the way it had always been done were kind of looking forward to it. Uh, this this uh, uh, young glamour boy coming in. Uh, uh, but uh, the miracle of it is uh, the degree to which he succeeded. But it was a real struggle to win over the support of the men who served under him and to fill his own shoes. Did uh, Cleveland come looking for Elliot Ness um, as a result uh, in part of the um, the serial killings or was it because they had the same problems that Chicago and probably other big cities had, uh, you know, uh, criminal uh, organized crime and basically corrupt officials, city officials? Uh, Cleveland had a new reform-minded mayor whose name was Harold Burton, and he had a plan to lift the city out of the slump that it was in during the Great Depression by clamping down on crime. This was an equation that Ness understood. He'd seen it in Chicago. He knew uh, th that, uh, that the economy and uncontrolled crime were listed or were uh, inextricably linked. Ness's marching orders when he came to Cleveland were to clean up the police department, which was basically rotting from the inside because of corruption, and also to try to break the stranglehold that the mob had over the city. Now, you know, imagine getting that set of uh, of marching orders on your first on your first day. Yeah, uh, clear, uh, clear up corruption in the police department and take down the mob. And, you know, then if you've got time, break for lunch. I mean, it's a huge, <laughs> huge job. And the miracle uh, is the degree to which he succeeded. Uh, there, there were one of his reporter friends said, uh, you know, his timing was absolutely perfect. The city had seldom needed a hero so badly. And when he got to town and began to show the city what could be done, uh, he, he became that hero. Daniel will take another time out, come back and discuss more. Elliot Ness arrives in Cleveland to save the day. Back with more in a moment. It's time to redefine reality. This is Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. New York Times bestselling author and Edgar Award winner Daniel Stashauer is with us. The new book is American Demon, Elliot Ness and the Hunt for America's 
Jack the Ripper. Um, when Elliot Ness arrived in Cleveland, was that in the midst of this um, killing spree in the, the Cleveland, uh, Cleveland's mad butcher? Or the murders had started, yeah. but they had not yet gotten uh, the recognition as a series of crimes. Uh, so the murders began before Ness came to town, but they really gathered force during his time in office. So much so uh, that eventually he had to take, he the mayor urged him to take personal control of the investigation, which it's fair to say was probably not a job that he wanted. Um, but he felt a responsibility to take it on. Right. I mean, he's not a homicide detective. He's uh, not. So you know, the Elliot Ness from television would have strapped on his gun and gone kicking down doors. But the real Elliot Ness is a different guy. And it's important to point out, as you suggest, catching killers wasn't his job. He'd never done that. And he wasn't hired to do that. He wasn't hired to be a homicide detective uh, any more than he would have been hired as a fireman or a crossing guard, he was the director of public safety. He was at the top of the pyramid. The chief of police reported to him. Nobody expects the director of public safety to go out and solve a murder any more than they expect him to walk a beat or rescue a cat stranded in a tree, except when it's Elliot Ness. People did expect it from Elliot Ness. They expected heroics. Ness had made a point of saying that he would not be a remote director. He would not be locked away in his office in City Hall. He said he would lead from the front lines. He would do his own investigative work. So over time, as the pattern of these crimes gathered force, he had to step in. And when he stepped in, what what did he do? How did he, did he, did he organize, I don't know, like a, what do we call it today, a task force or what did he do specifically? He did. Yeah, that's exactly what he did. He put together a team in the mold of the untouchables. And for time, they worked outside the system and under the radar, trying to get information off of the criminal grapevine. And that's not to say that he ignored the official effort. He devoted extra resources and manpower to the official effort. But this smaller hands-on effort was very typical of him. It's how he approached uh, his campaign on gambling. It was how he was rooting out corruption in the ranks. That was the kind of thing he did. He liked to be out in the field. He said very little about the case publicly, but there was one notable statement. He said, I'm going to do all I can to aid in the investigation. I want to see this psycho caught. Mm. How did the, um, the media... Um treat Ness in Cleveland in terms of this investigation? Did they put pressure on him? Um, how did that go? Everybody put pressure on him. The media put pressure on him. Uh, he put pressure on himself. And uh, certainly, the longer uh, these crimes dragged on, uh, the, the, the more that pressure was felt. There was one turning point that came when uh, Ness decided uh, that it would be useful to lead a raid into the shanty town encampments uh, near in and around Kingsbury Run uh, to to basically go knocking on uh, uh, rousting sleeping people. It, it was this was done in darkness and uh, and bring them all in in hopes 
of either finding the killer in the in the uh in the act or depriving him of his hunting grounds and when all was said and done um these shanty towns were burned and this was not a great moment for ness in terms of his relations with the press they had been he'd had their support they he'd, he'd been lionized but this marked a turning point in the relationship and it was felt he'd gone too far um the um the actual murder did he he, he kind of taunted Ness, didn't he? Some similar to like the um, uh, Rodriguez in in L.A. You know, uh, was writing notes and so forth to the investigators. It's a complicated story because we know he never did uh, find evidence that he could hang on that guy. So whether or not this um, uh, uh, this suspect, who was known initially as Doctor X was the killer or not uh, is going to be argued um, like the identity of Jack the Ripper for as long as people discuss such things. But from the beginning, the investigators believed that the killer had knowledge and training that allowed for the surgical precision of the dismemberments that had been performed on the victims. They thought it was a doctor or a butcher. That was the theory. And soon Ness and his team uh, zeroed in on a guy that they liked for the crime. He was a doctor who had fallen on hard times and had a substance abuse problem. He checked a lot of boxes. So they started tailing him around town. And apparently, Dr. X took a perverse pleasure in it, as if it were a form of hide-and-seek. There are stories that he even called into police headquarters to taunt the investigators on the poor quality of their surveillance effort. He'd pick up the phone and say something to the effect of, boy, that guy you had tailing me wasn't very good. If he wants to try again, I'll be at such and such a department store uh, tomorrow afternoon. Well, at one stage, Ness and his men scooped this guy up and grilled him for a long time in a hotel suite. The details are sketchy and they're contradictory. One of Ness's colleagues said the interrogation went on for a week or two in eight-hour stretches, but the suspect never cracked, and Ness finally had to let him go. As I said, people are going to argue until the end of time whether this was the actual killer, in the same way that we talk about the Grassy Knoll or Jack the Ripper. Ness was alert to the possibility of other suspects, but he seems to have believed that this was the guy. There's um, a possible link. Um to the Black Dahlia murder in L.A. in 38? Some have said it. I, I don't think um, it was investigated at the time and found um, that it did not hold water. But that is something that comes up along with other crimes all across the country that that bear uh, a resemblance to one degree or another to the series in Cleveland. Did the, did the alleged murder sort of confess to that murder, the Black Dahlia murder, Elizabeth Short to, to Ness in a letter, or is that an apocryphal story? Or uh, No, that no, that didn't happen. And in fact, in these taunting postcards that you mentioned, uh, only a handful of them survive, and they're preserved in scrapbooks in at Cleveland's Western Reserve Historical Society. It's really remarkable. I mean, they're, they're, they come off as 
uh, this rambling swirl of ink blots and this rising blast furnace of uh, of craziness and uh, hatred directed directed at Ness. And it, 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 there are a couple of points at which it walks right up to the line of being something that you could uh, interpret as a confession, but it never crosses that line. So uh, uh, he never gave anything Ness. He never gave anything to Ness that would stand up in court. Very clever. Let's talk about that scrapbook. As you're leafing through that, a, a familiar face pops up. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, as I mentioned, I spent a lot of time looking through Ness's papers and family scrapbooks. And uh, as you'd expect, uh, there were a lot of familiar faces. There's Capone, there are other gangsters, and also a lot of the era's uh, shining lights, FDR, John D. Rockefeller, uh, J. Edgar Hoover. And I'm paging through, and uh, suddenly a very familiar face jumps out at me, and it was my grandfather, Fred Stashauer. Now, I thought it must be a mistake. I thought I dozed off or something. So I'd love to be able to tell you that my grandfather was a bootlegger or a bank robber or, you know, a murder suspect. But it turns out that Ness and my grandfather crossed paths at least once a year at a political roast. This was like a, a Comedy Central roast that happened every year. And my grandfather, I came to find out, was a cast member for years and years, and Ness was a frequent target. They called them the goats, and Ness was always one of the goats, the people that they made fun of. And apparently Ness took it in stride. You know, he, he cut out a, an article about this thing, uh, a caricature of some of the actors, including my grandfather, pasted it into his scrapbook, and also a photograph of himself with his hand pressed to his forehead as if he sort of doubled over in appreciation of the joke. I can't tell you what a surprise it was for me because I knew my grandfather for 34 years. This was long after the Untouchables TV series and even the, the Kevin Costner movie. I don't recall that he ever mentioned Elliot Ness by name, but it's great to know that Ness could laugh at himself. You know, he may have been untouchable, uh, but the man could take a joke. Yeah, well, add that to his list of attributes, incorruptible, humble, and a good sense of humor. Um, so obviously he didn't solve, well, the investigators didn't solve, it remains unsolved. Did Ness take this as a uh, a personal failure that they never caught the, uh, the butcher, the torso murderer? I don't think he did. Uh, the crimes did stop. And I believe Ness was able to take some satisfaction. He certainly came to believe that he that that uh, that his the intensity of their investigation had played a played a role in that. It's important to remember that uh, Ness's evidence also was not the evidence that sent Al Capone to prison. Although Ness gathered plenty of evidence, and they were comparing, they were preparing to prosecute Ness on this prohibition evidence. Uh, that Ness and his team had gathered, Capone went away on uh, on on probe on tax uh, tax charges, but they had defanged the serpent, and Capone was no longer a threat to the city of Chicago. The killing stopped in Cleveland, and I believe Ness uh, could 
had to be, uh, he, obviously, uh, he would have liked a more conclusive uh, um, wrapping up, but I believe he could have, he, he was able to take satisfaction again in having defanged the serpent. What becomes of Elliot Ness after Cleveland? Does he just move on to the next job? It's not a, it's not a happy story. Uh, in, in, at many times during his time as safety director, People were urging him to go into business, to step on, uh, to take on lucrative business opportunities, uh, to to um, to basically cash in on his success and on his fame. Ness liked the job he had. He said, I may take one of those jobs one day, but for the moment, I've got a job to do. After his time as safety director was over, uh, he went into service during the Second World War. Um, and and also served there with considerable distinction. And when he came out, and it was time to to try to take advantage, move back to Cleveland and uh, and make some bank, uh, his moment had passed, and he struggled uh, for the rest of his life, really um, to find a job um, job security. It's uh, it's uh, it's unfortunate. At one point, he ran for mayor. But again, his moment had, had passed. He was, and he was defeated, and he uh, died fairly young, in his fifties, of a heart attack, and penniless, from what I understand, virtually. And uh, although by that time uh, the the book that became the Untouchables was underway, and Ness saw the page proofs, he did not live to see the book publication. The book published. And he was, he did not live to see the thunderclap of fame and renown that followed. Mm, sad. It's, it's a fascinating and perhaps little known chapter in American history. American Demon, Elliot Ness and the Hunt for America's Jack the Ripper. Daniel, great uh, speaking with you. Thank you so much for this. My pleasure. Thank you. How do we get the book? It's available at bookstores everywhere, and it's out in paperback now. Fantastic. American Demon. Check it out. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. 